I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. And we're continuing our, our uh, series that we left off of two weeks ago on uh, talking about the kingdom. How does Jesus describe the kingdom of God? And I've said this so many times before, but forgive me for repeating myself. Jesus, when he describes the kingdom, doesn't give you a, uh, a, a really a textbook response or a Webster's Dictionary definition of the kingdom. Instead, he paints several pictures. He tells stories. He draws you a diagram of, of, of things that are just elements of the kingdom. Jesus didn't tell one parable and say this is the this parable is fully defining the kingdom. He actually told several of them and said the kingdom is like this. The kingdom is like this. The kingdom is like this. So that we would see with the eyes of our heart. And that we would begin to understand things that are too deep for you to understand. That's part of your heart being open. What The first and key parable. Uh, Jesus said if you, can if you can't understand this parable, you can't get any of the other ones. And that was the parable of the sower. Right? He said, if you can understand the parable of the sower, the parable of the sower is the parable that unlocks all the other parables. And the key to the parable of the sower was your heart when you receive the word of God, when you hear it. He said there was people with hard hearts that they hear God's word and, and they really just don't ever receive it. They walk away and immediately the word is stolen from their heart. They never really received it. He said there are shallow-hearted people that will amen and, and rejoice and enjoy a good message, but it never puts down firm roots in their life. And that seed will be fine until something hard comes along. And it says affliction arises because of the word. Right? Once again, Satan coming to steal the word. Affliction arises because of the word. But he says this, that those who have a firm root within themselves, even when the sun beats down on them, their roots go to a stream, their roots, roots extend to life, and they are not shriveled up. They, they remain in the storm, they remain in the, in the drought, they remain in the harsh conditions. Then he says there are those that are, um, they've had some growth in their life, but they're so busy and with the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things. They've kept themselves so busy that the word has no room to grow in their heart. And because it has no room to grow, it gets choked out by all these other distractions in life. And he says it becomes unfruitful. That one's a little jarring to me because the, the phrase becomes unfruitful seems to imply that at one time it was bearing fruit. And we all can look back at seasons of our life where we were really fruitful as believers. What does it mean to be fruitful as a believer? It means that the things of God that are being planted in you by what you read, what you hear, what you receive, are, they're producing real life things. They're producing uh, the fruit of the Spirit in your life. They're producing uh, the gifts of the Spirit. They're producing all these things in your life. They're producing love and joy and peace and patience. And what you're finding that, that's coming out of your life is echoing what's been planted in your heart. We could all look back at times where we were fruitful and, and uh, it was a time where God had room in our life Probably because what we were hearing and receiving was so foreign to us that we didn't try to put any boundaries on it because we didn't know where the boundaries would start or end, right? So when you first came to Jesus, you didn't try to put all this stuff in a little box because you hadn't, it was so foreign, you didn't know what kind of box would work. You, you didn't even try to put God in a, in a container because it was just, everything was different. It's only through letting yourself 
get reacclimated to the things of the world and trying to figure out how the things of God and the things of the world go together, that's when we become lukewarm. That's when we become distracted. And it says it chokes out the word. We just become so busy. Well, I, I believe. He said that was the key to all the other parables. So I'm not preaching on that parable today, but I think that parable is important for us. Because Jesus said that one, he says, he talk, when he was talking about the, 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 the person who built his house on the rock and the person that built his house on the sand, he said that the person who built his house on a rock didn't go to a different location. And I used to believe that. You know, Jesus, for those of you that don't know this story, Jesus told a simple parable. He said there were two men and one built his house on a sandy, you know, just, just loose surface. And one built his house on a rock. And both those houses looked good. They looked the same when they were first built. But one of them built him on a rock. And when the storms came, he doesn't say if the storms come. He says when they come. The man who built his house on a rock, his house stood. His house was stormproof. Stormproof doesn't mean you're not going to experience storms. Stormproof means when storms come, it doesn't shake you off your faith, right? There's a big difference. We think weatherproof means I will not experience weather. That's not what weatherproof means. Does your, wet, does your rainproof jacket prevent the rain? You put it on, go, no rain today, folks. Got my rainproof jacket. We're good. <laughs> Sure is windy outside. Let me get my windbreaker. That's, that, that's going to be taken care of in a minute. No, it doesn't stop the weather. It, it prevents the weather from ruining you. Right? And so when we, we built our house on the right foundation, it doesn't stop the storms from coming. But it means you'll still be standing. The storms can't destroy your faith. But he says there's a man who built this house on the sand. And when the storms came, it swept away his whole house. I used to believe that the man who built this house on the rock was just better at scouting locations. But the Bible, Jesus said, no, it's a man who dug down deep right. till he hit rock. Yes. That was the difference. Presumably, they're sort of in the same location, but one dug deeper until he hit rock. So he, he went and described it. When he explained it, he said, this is a man who received the word with a good and sincere heart, an honest and sincere heart. And I think what, what that means for me, when I'm receiving the word with an honest and sincere heart, I'm having to let the word go deep enough that it affects more than just my ears. It affects more than just my mood. It begins to affect the deepest parts of my soul and deepest parts of my heart. And when it goes down deep, so digging deep is not something that happens in 45 minutes at a church service. Right? right. right? Yeah. Now God will hit you in deep places. You'll be poked in places you don't want to be poked sometimes. But it, this is going to require you digging deep. Right? How do I, how do I hear the word? You know, Peter said that we need to uh, receive the word implanted, that by it we may grow in respects to salvation. And he said, he said, long for the pure milk of the word. And then in another place he said, uh, or I believe it was James that said this, receive the word implanted, receive it, like let it come deep. And, and that, that's got to be more than just hearing the message because the shallow hearted people hear the message just fine. Mm -hmm. It's about going home and saying, how does this really affect my life and, and what's changing, what's shifting and what's getting pushed out of the way because roots are going out, right? And so when we read in Matthew 13, he's about to tell us a string of parables. So you know when Jesus tells you a bunch of parables together, I think they help explain each other. I think that you should read them together. 
For the sake of time today, and because we've already preached on some of these parables, I'm not going to do that, but it would do you well, if you're having trouble understanding one, read the others. And also, ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Because Jesus said that the key to understanding these parables is that your eyes would be open, your ears would be open, and your heart would be open. When your eyes are open, you see what God wants you to see. When your ears are open, you hear his voice. And when your heart is open, he says you understand things. So it takes an open heart to understand the things of God. You see, our world teaches us it takes a higher intellect to understand the things of God. The world teaches you if you don't understand something, it's because you're not smart enough. But what God teaches us is if you don't understand, the, he, he tells us in 1 Corinthians, the smartest of the smart can't understand this. Nobody is smart enough to understand the things of God. Nobody. Nobody's smart enough to understand the things of God. It has to be revealed by God. The good news is he wants to. The key is you've got to let that happen in you. You've got to say, okay, Lord, open my heart that I might understand things that are too deep for me to understand. So we're going to read and we're going to start reading in, in, in uh, Matthew 13, verse 33. Now, this, this is cool because a couple weeks ago, we talked about the parable that came right before this, which was the parable of the mustard seed, the very small, smallest of the seeds that they were familiar with. A, a small, small seed that is small when it's sown, but it, it becomes big and it takes over space. And he was talking about the fact that, that the kingdom of God is like something, that, like a small, small seed that, that is sown and then later takes over the garden and gives, gives a, a place for the birds to nest and all of that. So we talked about not despising, not thinking small about the small things, valuing the little things because God starts with seeds. God, God didn't bring Jesus, he, God didn't put Jesus on the earth as a 30-year-old man. He put Jesus on the earth as a baby. So it takes faith to look at a baby and say, this is the Messiah. It takes faith to look at a baby and say, that's the Son of God. Anybody can look at a man who's doing miracles and say, this is someone special. It takes faith to believe God when this baby, all it's doing is, is lying there and, and making a mess for mom and dad to clean up. Right? I mean, because we know that Jesus made a mess. Right? right? We don't think he just never had dirty diapers. He was human like us. Right. It takes faith to see that. And so it takes faith to see that God starts things with small things, but they will grow to be yeah. big. The reason I bring that up is because it's really going to play into what we're about to read now. In Matthew 13, 33, he spoke another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Jesus was a great rapper. He's laying it down. I'm not even going to try. And I'm pretty sure this doesn't rhyme in his native tongue, but it's great. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is like leaven or yeast. It says, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. That's it. That's the end of that parable. All right, so just stand and we're going to pray together. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Selah, let's just go home and think about that. 
So Jesus, uh, you know, listen, Jesus didn't tell stories about things they didn't understand. He, he painted pictures of things they knew, right? They knew how to make bread. That was something they understood. He didn't tell them about a plant they hadn't observed. He told them a plant that was in their, all their gardens. So he tells them about a woman that hides three, pe- hides three pecks of flour in the, in the dough. Now, number one, sh- hiding doesn't mean she's trying to be secretive about it. I don't know any of you that make bread and you look around seeing if anybody's watching <laughs> before you put the yeast in, right? Uh, if that's your routine, something's weird in your house. I don't know what it is. Nobody's like, huh, huh, huh. Hidden means it, you, you, you're, you're putting it in deep, right? Like, like David said, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. He doesn't mean I'm trying to keep it secret. He means I'm letting it go deep, right? I'm hiding it. It's going deep into my heart. So the, so the yeast is being worked into the dough. Yeah. And when it's worked into the dough, all of the dough is leavened. Now, just three pecks. In, th- in three pecks of flour, a little bit of yeast in three pecks of flour, and eventually the whole thing is leaven. Now, if you've read uh, elsewhere in the scripture, leaven usually isn't a good thing in the scripture. It's often used, not always, sometimes it's neutral, but a lot of times it's used for uh, the influence of sin and worldliness in our, in our, in our minds, in our church, in our culture. You know, in the Old Testament, when they had the Passover, all of the bread and everything in the Passover was unleavened. In fact, they, they made a, a bit of a game for the kids. Now, even to this day, people that practice Passover, there's a game for the kids where they go throughout all the house and find any bits of leaven, and the parents will kind of hide some somewhere, and you get all the leaven out of the house. Well, there's symbolism there. Number one, they, they had to use unleavened bread because they were getting out of Egypt quick. But number two, there's even greater symbolism because that leaven often would symbolize corruption, Sin and the bread that they're partaking of, not only was the lamb a symbol of Jesus, but the bread was a symbol of Jesus. And he gave his body, a sinless body, on the cross for us. That that bread was broken for us, that bread bore stripes, that bread was pierced, but it was unleavened, it was without sin, it was without corruption. Uh, and so, you know, that's part of the symbolism. Paul talks about uh, letting some worldliness and some, some sin in. And he says, a little leaven, he says, you guys shouldn't let this go on in your church because a little leaven will leaven the whole lump of dough. It'll affect all of you. So a lot of times the leaven is used to talk about uh, worldviews, mindsets, things that creep in and slowly infect everybody. There's a story in Mark, Mark 4, Jesus is, is just finished multiplying the loaves and the fishes. And he sends his disciples on the boat and he says, you guys go ahead, I'm going to stay behind. And, uh, or, I mean, I'm sorry, he doesn't send them ahead, but he's, he's about to launch them out, they're about to go on the water. And uh, he tells them, he warns them because he's had some Pharisees come up to him and ask him some dumb questions and he's, he's, had, some, he's had Herod's folks come and he says, you need, you need to beware, beware, be careful about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And, and what he's talking about, you know, what, what is the leaven of Herod? What's the thought process that Herod has that could infect them, them and really affect their faith? Well, Herod is one of those guys that is just, he's a, he's a secularist in, in, in every way, really. Um, he, he built a temple because it made the Jewish people happy. He 
and outwardly would do some rituals, but uh, for all intents and purposes, the dude is an atheist. You know, I mean, he is, he is somewhat, uh, he, he acknowledges that there's a God, but he's basically saying, if anything's going to get done, we're going to get it done. So if you have Herod's attitude, remember just after this, they remember that they don't have any bread. If you have Herod's attitude in the boat with no bread, you say, well, it's my fault. I should have got bread. Uh, if I want bread, I need to get it done. Uh, if we wanted to feed the multitudes, we needed to think ahead and get a bunch of bread for everybody. Uh, God helps those that help themselves. That sort of attitude. Uh, basically, we say God's doing something. We really don't expect him to do anything. Then he says, you know, you need to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And, and in another place where he said that, he, he specifically told them that the Pharisee, the leaven of the Pharisees had to do with hypocrisy. And, and in many ways, the leaven of the Pharisees was acknowledging God, believing and talking about God, but never really expecting that, never expecting that God's at work in their life, never opening their heart to God. Just It's all outward religious ceremony and religious speech. The leaven of the Pharisees would probably, they're, they're obsessed with the why, but they're never really worried about the solution. So when the Pharisees see a blind man, they wonder what he did to become blind. When the Pharisees see a lame man, what did you do? Did your parents do something? Did you do something? Remember his disciples asked that question? Because that's what they learned from their Pharisee friends. They learned that if somebody has a problem, they must have done something wrong. And Jesus says, guys... He didn't even address the question. He said, nobody sinned, but the glory of God is going to be shown. And he healed the man. So Jesus was offering solutions, but all the Pharisees had were more questions. All they cared about was the why, not the what do we do about it now. Is God at work now? Later when they got on the boat, Jesus left them. And they got off the, on the boat and a storm comes. They all think they're going to die. And then Jesus walks on the water. And he's walking on the water and they freak out because they think it's a ghost. And then they, they realize that it's Jesus and, and it says they're astonished because they didn't learn anything about the incident with the loaves. Now, when I first read that, it confused me. Jesus multiplied loaves and fishes and I'm supposed to somehow relate that to him walking on water. To me, those things didn't go together at all. I mean, why would I think... He did a miracle where he multiplied loaves and fishes. So, of course, the guy's going to walk on water. That, my brain doesn't think that way, right? I'm not making that connection. He says they were astonished. Or they, they were just blown away because, you know, they learned nothing about the incident of the loaves. I believe there's two things they should have learned. Number one, if God could do that, God can do this, right? Yeah. Cool. What's the other thing they learned about the incident with the loaves? This is something that they should have picked up right away. When Jesus blessed the loaves and the fishes, the loaves and the fishes did not multiply in Jesus' hands. Right. No. He multiplied, they multiplied in the disciples' hands. Jesus sent the disciples to break the loaves. He sent the disciples to break the fishes. And as the disciples did what Jesus said, miracles happened in their own hands. So part of what they should have learned is that God does miracles and, he, and, and Jesus is doing miracles and the power of God is shown, but he wants to do it through our hands as well. This is part of discipleship. We're supposed to expect that we could speak peace to the storm and the storm would be quiet. We're supposed to know that. They didn't know that because they didn't learn what Jesus was trying to to teach them with the loaves and the fishes. He could have multiplied everything right there. It would have made him look great, but he chose to use the disciples to do this miracle. Why? He's about to send them out to do miracles. 
They need to be trained that it's going to happen through their hands. Now, I say all that to say this. Jesus is warning them that there are worldviews and mindsets that could creep into your heart. And you need to be careful that they don't. Paul said there are things that are creeping into the church. We need to watch that that doesn't infect our hearts. So a lot of times that's how we think of leaven. Beware. At any moment, the devil could get into our church. Right? We're, huh. Snipers on the roofs. Let's get ready. Is roofs a word? Is it roofs? Roofs. Let's, let's beware. Let's be cautious. Now, he does say beware. He does say be careful about this. But then Jesus actually paints another picture here that it's not just the world that can get into the church. In fact, it's the kingdom that's made to get into the world and expand. Now, that's exciting, right? And that's something that I, I, I think we should all be excited about is that the kingdom is meant to spread. It's meant to be infectious. It's meant to win and prevail. And, and that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, there'll be a day before Jesus returns that everybody just believes like us. No, quite to the contrary. There's going to be, there'll always be people that oppose it, but the kingdom of God itself is unrestrained. It's going to spread. It's going to take ground. It's going to infect. He says it's just like putting a little bit of yeast in and you work it into the dough and then the whole lump is full of it. You know, Jesus prayed a prayer at the end of his ministry. In John 17, he said, Lord, he says, Father, I don't ask that you take these ones out of the world, but I ask that you keep them from the evil one. Now, when you, when you think of what, that, what does that mean that you keep them from the evil one? Does that mean that, that they never get any cuts or bruises? No, because he's told them already, some of you are going to get your head chopped off. So uh, what does it really mean to be kept from the evil one? It's obviously not talking about we're never going to go to prison or we're never going to have to get beat up for what we believe in because they all did. How are they kept from the evil one? The evil one is not afraid, I mean, he's, he's, he's not afraid of Christians just being alive. He's afraid of Christians that believe what they say they believe and affect the world around them. Satan's number one goal was not to kill Christians. It was to water them down so much that they had no effect on the world around them. We say, well, Satan's goal, he's trying to kill Christians. Yeah, he is, but that's really, like I've said before, if you look throughout the Bible, the New Testament, and church history, when they're about to kill someone for what they believe, they beg them to recant. Yes. They beg them to compromise because Satan would rather have a compromised Christian than a dead one. Right. So what's Satan most afraid of? You believing what you say you believe. Mm -hmm. You living it up because that's infectious. Yeah. That'll change the world around you. That will spread like wildfire. Even when the martyrs went to their deaths, the way they went to their deaths got hundreds, thousands saved as they observed their faith. So listen, there's nothing to be afraid of here when we are really believing the gospel of the kingdom. It changes our life so much that it can't help but affect the world around us. Right? So let's look at Acts 19. I, I go to this chapter a lot because it's one of my favorites in the book of Acts. It, it's one of my favorite stories of, a, of an utterly dark and perverse city being transformed by the gospel of the kingdom. 
Acts 19, we did a series of it a year or two ago where we talked about Ephesus and we talked about the perversity and, and the culture and how in many ways the culture in Ephesus was very similar to the culture we are in today except the culture in Ephesus was further along. Yeah. Not in a good way. The culture in Ephesus was further corrupted than our culture. I know a lot of people that think this is as dark as it's ever gotten. You have not read history. No. Haven't you read your Bible? If you think this is as dark as it's been. Uh, there's, there's a certain level and, and there are types of deception that have taken a new form in our current world. But, you know, this is nothing new. Satan's got no new tricks. There's nothing absolutely new about 2019's deception. It's the same stuff that they had in the, in the Bible. So... Ephesus is, is, is a pluralistic society that uh, uh, really honors other and, and incorporates, tries to incorporate all these different religions. Um, it's, it's perverse sexually, very, very twisted and, and messed up. Uh, the family was, was, was broken and, and, and so twisted beyond recognition. Uh, monogamy was a joke. This, this, there's just, you know... It was a culture that was so beyond recognition to somebody who say, to say a Jew like Paul who lands on the shores and, and believes what God has taught them that this is what life is and this is who I am. He's actually going to a city that believes in many gods and, and believes in, 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 in worshiping. Uh, there was an Egyptian death cult and there were, there were prostitutes in the temple and there was all these things. And so... Um, for Paul, he would have had to, you know, and he's got Priscilla and Aquila with him. These are three good Jewish people that really would have been shocked by what they saw. And, and I, I think it would, be, it would be a shame if those Christians were so shocked that they turned their boat around and went back where it was safe. Yeah. Instead, they chose to put their feet on the soil and make a home in a dark city carrying the light of Jesus Christ. The first thing that happens is Paul encounters some disciples but these are disciples that don't even know about the Holy Spirit. They've heard what John preached, but they, they, they didn't know that they could be reborn and experience the Holy Spirit. And they didn't know about all of that. And so uh, they believed, but they didn't know everything. And Paul laid his hands on them and they received the gift of the Spirit. Praise God. Really cool. And then he takes, he goes and he takes those 12 guys and he says, let's go to the synagogue and let's preach to our fellow Jews. Let's talk to them about the gospel of the kingdom. Let's talk to them about Jesus, the Messiah. And he does it for three months until they kick him out. They kick him out. He's just, he's just too radical, right? They say, we don't want to hear about this anymore. So Paul goes and he rents out a theater. Uh, it's it called the Theater of Dionysus. Now, when we talk about a theater, we're thinking movies, like a cinema. But a theater to them was just basically an amphitheater. It was a place where people would gather. And uh, it's a school of Dionysus. So this was a school of philosophy. This was a place where people would be taught. Uh, and it was in Philosopher's Square. So a lot of things were being taught in this area. This is a neighborhood where people go to hear different ideas ideas. Paul was not afraid of the gospel standing in the middle of all those ideas. But he knew he was not preaching an idea or a philosophy. He was demonstrating the power of God. So here is what it says in Acts chapter 19 verse 8 it says he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months reasoning and persuading them about what? The kingdom, the kingdom of God. So often we think that 
Paul and Peter and those guys just went around preaching uh, Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, he died on the cross for your sins. He rose again. Believe that. And that's true. That is the core of the gospel of the kingdom. But he was preaching a whole new reality. And this is what's so shocking to them, right? He preached the gospel of the kingdom. And then it says, but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, and that's what they called Christians at the time, the way, before the multitude, he withdrew from them and he took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So just for some of you that might not be familiar with ancient Roman maps, uh, Asia is not the Asia that we think of today. We think of Asia as, you know, being the Far East. He's talking about the Roman province of Asia, which was, uh, you know, what's now Turkey, you know, and, and parts of Greece. That's, that's what he's talking about. So he's not talking about China, Japan, Vietnam. He's talking about uh, uh, that province in, in Rome. But what's so cool is, it says Paul's preaching every day for two years. Right there in Ephesus. But it says all, that whole province, which is a giant province, that whole province heard the gospel. Right. Do the math, guys. Paul's not the guy going all those places. He's there. He's got a steady gig. Every day in Ephesus, he's there. He's not going, he's not going out and taking you know, a week-long journey somewhere to the far-flung far corners of the province. He's staying in one place. He started with 12 guys. But now, apparently, there's enough people coming and hearing the gospel and going back to where they came from or going to a new place that the gospel is being spread throughout all of Asia, not by Paul, but by believers like you and me. And their yeast... The yeast of just a few of those believers going into the world infected the whole province. Paul talked about it to the Thessalonians too. He said, he said, the word of God that we've been preaching to you has gone out from you. I, I've used this example before, but this guitar right now is, is you know, it's, you can kind of hear it. But you can't really hear it, can you? You can, you can hear it if you're right there, but the neighbors aren't complaining about this. But we run it through this system and it, it's amplified and it goes out. This guitar can be heard by a few. Now, if it was an acoustic guitar, it could be heard by a few more. But you run it through an amplifier. You run it through a system. And all of a sudden, it goes, you know, and, and you can make it as loud as you want almost. Well, it, the gospel is like that. We're, it, we were the receivers, but the, the preacher that's initially preaching or the book you read or whatever it was that got the gospel to you, that's like an unplugged guitar. You heard it it but you're the amplifier you're how that goes out and so God amplified his word through his people and, it, and, and Paul said it went out from among you so that we don't even have the need to say anything everybody's heard about it and it says here that the gospel spread throughout all of Asia because the, the yeast those few believers now listen they're not all preachers they're not all people that went back and gave full time to teaching in the synagogue or teaching in a school. These are some people that went back to their jobs. Mm -hmm. They went back to making tents. They went back to fishing. They went back to being merchants. But as they were doing that, they were proclaiming the gospel. They were living the gospel until the whole province has heard the gospel. That's really cool. Yeah. That's the yeast. 
that works its way into a culture and changes a culture. Watch this. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that the handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick. Diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. He tells a story of some Jewish exorcists that tried to copy it and it didn't work for them. It says the name of the Lord is being magnified. Verse 18, many of those who believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So, or this is proof, that the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. It was winning. Now we're followed. That story is followed by the story of the town merchants and silversmiths making up their mind to kill Christians because it's ruining their economy of idolatry. So the word of the Lord's growing mightily and winning, but it doesn't mean that everybody likes you all of a sudden. It doesn't mean that everybody agrees with you, but it means that it's changing the culture. And, and, and the people that oppose, the guy that starts the riot, that opposes the Christians, he stands up and says, if this gospel keeps getting preached, if this message keeps getting preached, the goddess Diana or uh, you know, uh, Artemis that we all worship and all of Asia worships will be dethroned from her magnificence if they keep preaching this. Even their enemies knew that this gospel was so dangerous that could change the whole culture of the province if it keeps being preached and lived out. Most Christians aren't that confident. Right? Mm -hmm. We're more worried about how do we stop Diana? How do we stop Artemis? How do we stop this idolatry? Instead of saying, how do we spread the kingdom? Yeah. I want to I just briefly, as we're talking about the yeast, the leaven of the kingdom, infecting everything, I want to talk about it in two senses. Number one, personally for you. And then larger, in the larger sense, the culture. In fact, let's reverse them. Let's talk about the larger sense first. Let's talk about our culture. You know, let's talk about what it might look like for the culture in Canada to be affected by the culture of the kingdom. One of the, one of the biggest blessings in Canada is also our biggest obstacle. And that is the heritage of faith that we have. That's a blessing. It's a blessing that our founding fathers stood up and said, this is what we believe, that, that he will have dominion from sea to sea, from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Why is that an obstacle? Well, it's an obstacle because uh, at some point it stopped being a powerful message of gospel and it just became a cultural, we just mixed it with so much culture that eventually it just became, well, people go to church on Christmas and Easter, they just, you know, people do the religious thing, but people might say they're Christians, but they don't act like Christians, or they don't really believe it. They're just, you know, if you were to poll them and say, what religion are you? They go, well, I'm not Buddhist, I'm not Muslim, I guess I'm Christian. It was a culture that had the form of godliness, but without the power. Now you see, when you look at the polls, and you see in Canada, oh, less people are going to church. The numbers of people going to church are going down. All the churches I know, pretty much, where God's at work, it's the body of Christ growing. That's right. yeah. uh, where are the stats? 
Why, why are these stats showing less people going to church? Because people aren't going to church just to say, I went to church anymore. Those people stopped going to church. Those people don't feel like they need to go to church. The people that were never really believers, but felt like this is what we do, they stopped going to church. But the cool thing is, they're starting to get saved. Maybe they stopped going to church at Christmas and Resurrection Sunday, but now they're confronted and encountered by the fact that there is a real God. And it's not just about showing up and having your kids baptized and then being buried and married in the church. It's about being changed by the power of God. So you'll find real believers in Canada, that number is growing. And then God did something amazing. He's, he's, he's pouring out revival amongst First Nations communities in the north. He's bringing refugees and immigrants from other parts of the world that are firing the church up. Praise God. You know, we got all conservative and, 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 and stiff. And you bring people from Asia and Africa and the island nations. And they stir us up. And all of a sudden, we're excited again. Because God's bringing that, 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 that common culture of the spirit together. Yes. Now, the thing is, if the Bible says... You need to be careful of the leaven of the world getting into you. And Jesus says, but the leaven of the kingdom can get into the world. The question we need to ask is, am I influencing the world or is the world influencing me? Because I'll tell you something. A believer that is so soaked and marinated in the culture of the world has very little power of the kingdom in their life. If the voice you listen to the most is the voice of social media or the voice of Netflix or the voice of the news, then there's very little left for you to pour out to the world because your worldview is being informed by all these other things. I'm not saying you have to get rid of all those things. I'm saying they need to find their place. Mm -hmm. And God may tell you to get rid of them because you know what? God wants to set addicts free. Right? <laughs> so whether you're addicted to drugs, coffee, or entertainment, he wants to set you free. Amen. And uh, he may need to set you free from Facebook. Praise the Lord. He may need to set you free. The other thing I think that he's doing in our culture, and we need to be careful. This is the leaven of, this is the leaven, probably a little bit of the leaven of Herod and the Pharisees, is that in our culture, one of the leavens we need to be aware of is that we're, we're being pushed to a us and them reality yeah. that puts the bad guys on that side and us on this side and we want to get our politics up and we want to knock them down and we're no, longer in, we're no longer affecting them with the gospel of the kingdom. We actually built a wall around them. Those guys, are the, they support the politician I hate. They believe in this stuff I don't like. I've put them over here. I'm no longer speaking truth or life to them. I'm just trying to defeat them in the next election. I understand that it's important. Elections are important. But listen, guys, your friend across the street that voted for the wrong person is not your enemy. That's right. They're your mission field. That's right. And the number one thing you need to get to them is not, listen, you think the number one thing you need to convince them of is to vote for the right guy? Wrong. The number one thing they need to be convinced of is that Jesus is alive. Yes. That'll fix the other stuff. Yep. And when Jesus, boy, when Jesus comes back, 
None of the politicians would like him. Maybe a couple. He would not fit into any party platform. He would be a problem for everybody. He would not be invited on the cabinet. So thank God we've got some godly people in government right now. Thank God. We've got some ungodly ones. Thank God for the godly and pray for the ungodly. But you know, Jesus said you need to pray for your enemies, love your enemies, pray for those, bless those that persecute you. That's a little bit of yeast of the kingdom that when I start to believe that for real, it messes up my whole life. When I really believe these truths, when I let the truth of the kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom get into my heart and my soul, it begins to affect everything else. If I believe Jesus, I can't be the same. I'm changed from glory to glory. Now, that's where we brought to the second part, which is the yeast of the kingdom working in your heart and life. You see, we just read that the gospel... The word of the Lord was growing mightily and was prevailing. That sentence started with the word so. So the word of the Lord. In other words, this is tied to what they just talked about. What, what came before that statement? All of those people that believed had the gospel affect their life so much that they took what was once valuable to them. Their witchcraft, their books of magic that cost them a lot of money. These aren't people playing a magic game in their spare time. They're not burning their Ouija boards. Although, if they had one, they should burn it. They're not burning their toys. They're burning what they thought at one time made their business prosperous, made them successful. See, they put all their hope in this stuff. And they put a lot of their money into it as well. Now, they are so changed by the gospel that they want everyone to see, I'm not doing that anymore. And they burn it. They burned it in the side of all. You could have privately done it. They did it in front of everybody so that everybody knew, I'm different. The gospel so affected them that it affected the city they were in. I've said this before, but if you want the word of God to grow mightily and win in your community, then the word of God must first grow mightily and win in your heart. So if it's not causing me to turn from this and turn to that, if, if it's not causing me to turn from my idolatry, if it's not causing me to turn from all this stuff I used to think was valuable and turn to a living God, then I'm just outwardly believing something. But if it's really affecting me, then there's going to be a radical shift in my life. And, and you might say, well, I've been a believer for a long time. There's no more radical shifts to make. <laughs> well, I've been a believer for a long time too. And I know that steady, consistent growth is cool, but there are times where Jesus' words still mess with my reality in the most wonderful way. And I find out that his word just went a little bit deeper and the roots grew a little bit further. And when the roots grow a little bit further, they start messing with buildings they didn't mess with before. They start messing with plants they didn't touch before. Oh, isn't that a wonderful thing? The kingdom of God is that powerful. If people would take it seriously, Lloyd Minster wouldn't be the same. Your house wouldn't be the same. Your workplace wouldn't be the same. And I wonder if, just like we talked about, this, this is not a mistake that it comes directly after the parable of the mustard seed. Remember, when Jesus tells stories about seeds, he tells them, one of, the, one of the basic truths that he tells them is that these things always start out small and they, 
People can't make them grow. God makes them grow. But people can water them and people can harvest them. And it takes faith to let God grow a seed. It takes faith not to give up because something's small. Right after he told this parable in Matthew 13, he told one more or told another one. And this was the tares and the wheat. He tells a parable and he says that a man sowed his seed into the field, this wheat. It began to grow, but in the middle of the night, bad guys came. And they purposely sowed tares, weeds, into his field. And he says, when his workers come and go, somebody put bad stuff in our field. He goes, don't, don't uproot it yet. We'll harvest it all and then we'll separate. And when they asked Jesus, can you explain that parable to us? He explains it right after what we just read. He explains it like this. He says, the wheat, the seeds that God sows, God is a farmer. And he goes, the seeds are the sons and daughters of the kingdom. And the field is the world. I love that. He says, you're God's seed that he sowed into the world. And then he says, the tares are those that Satan sowed into the world. And, and, and he's got agents working on his behalf. And then he talks about at the end of the age, the angels will separate and, and God will separate who's on his side and who's not and it'll all be dealt with. But listen to this. What did the original parable tell us? Don't you try to uproot all the fakes and all the bad guys. Let God handle that. Because he said, if you go spend your life trying to figure out who in your church is for real and who's not, you're actually going to accidentally uproot some real people. You're going to wreck somebody that's just growing in the Lord. And maybe he's got some problems and maybe hasn't fully matured, but God's bringing him to that place. But you're so obsessed with purifying the church that you actually uprooted something God was doing. He says, you know what? Let God handle that. Now later, Paul says there's some mature people in the church that should know better. And he says, you need to deal with them, right? We need to fix that. But I want you to, I want you to know, I want you to see what God says. This is so cool. That God is throwing seed into the world. And he's throwing people into the oil field. And he's throwing people into the airline industry. He's throwing people into politics. He's throwing people into the, into the gas stations and grocery stores. He's throwing people into the bank. And he's sowing you into these fields that are, sur- and you're surrounded by people that disagree. And you're surrounded by people that don't seem to know what you're about. But something about you is infectious. It's, it's revolutionary. It's dangerous. And you get sometimes get so discouraged by all the tares and the weeds around you. God says, just grow. Just grow. And one of the most beautiful things about a seed is that the fruit that the seed produces has many more seeds within it. So when your life bears fruit, it's going to produce new seeds. It's going to produce new plants. When your life bears fruit, it's going to get people saved. It's going to get people into the kingdom. It's going to cause life around you. You are life-giving. I've said this before. I'm going to end with this thought. But the Bible says that Adam was a living spirit. But when Jesus came as the second Adam, he became a life-giving spirit. And I love that. There's a difference between a a living person and a life-giving person. And we are made in the nature of Jesus. We're reborn. 
like he was reborn. We are resurrected in Christ. And so we're no longer just living people that are just trying to get through life. We are life-giving people. We're incubators of God's seed. We are meant to produce and reproduce life. So, guys, here's what you're going to do today. First and foremost, go back and think of all the seeds that God planted in your heart. And let them go deeper than you've ever let them. You know what I mean? Let it go deeper in you. Let those things become more real to you. Because that that yeast is meant to work its way throughout your whole life. When I believe something revolutionary that Jesus taught, it affects all of my life. If it's only affecting part of your life, you haven't dug deep enough. Love your neighbor as you love yourself will affect every area of your life. Every single area of your life. Think about how revolutionary it was to Nicodemus when he said, if you want to be part of the kingdom, you must be born again. What? Those simple truths will affect everything. I love hearing people's salvation stories, how God brought them. And and many times what God started in them was just a simple question or thought that they couldn't get rid of. Who started all this? What happens when we die? There's got to be more to this. Things like that begin to eat away at you because he put eternity in our heart that we would seek him. Think about the things you've said to your coworkers, your friends, that you don't think had any effect. But the kingdom, it always starts out small and then it grows. It starts in one place and then it spreads. And When you really let the kingdom grow in you, it will spread to every part of your heart. You can't keep it isolated. So I encourage you, let God invade your heart. Let him totally invade your thought process. I want you to be so affected by the kingdom of God that when you watch your standard TV show, it seems foreign because you think different. It's like watch it. You understand the language, but that's not your language you speak. You go, why would anybody think like that? Why would you think that? Do you ever find yourself saying that? What in the world? Why would you say that? Why would you think like that? It should seem foreign to us. Just because it's foreign doesn't mean we don't reach them. We have a heart for them. We have a love for them. But I'm meant to affect them more than they affect me. And I think the kingdom is much more powerful than we give it credit for. The kingdom of God is not defensive. It's offensive. It's not reactive. It's proactive. It goes and it seeks and saves the lost. It's not afraid of the lost. It's not worried about the lost coming into our churches and messing things up. It goes and finds them because he came and found us. Would you stand with me and let's pray together.